Amino acids are the basic building blocks of life, and I know firsthand how critical it is to stay healthy. Therefore, I've been on the lookout for quite some time for something that's 100% science-backed that could both help with strength, cardiovascular health, and active aging. That's why I'm so happy I recently discovered Life from the Amino Company. Life is a patented blend of essential amino acids that works to improve strength, heart health, and overall quality of life so you can stay healthy and active as you age. It's an easy-to-use powder that you mix with water for a delicious drink that keeps you healthy. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com slash genius. That's spelled A-M-I-N-O-C-O dot com slash genius. Use coupon code genius for a 30% discount at checkout. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Kenneth Oliveira. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Biology at University of Massachusetts at uh, Dartmouth. We're going to talk about his research on American eels. And thanks for coming. You're welcome. Well, it seems like an unusual animal to study. What's a bit about your background and how did you, you know, get to studying eels? Well, eels have always been a fascinating fish for me. And it's a funny story, but it was actually a lecture while I was at the university that turned me on to eels. And as an undergraduate, I realized this was an incredible animal and I'd like to learn as much as possible about it. And 30 years later, I'm still doing it. Oh, very interesting. So I don't know, what are some general facts about eels before we get into your research specifically, like how many species and, you know, how long have they been around? Well, my focus is on uh, the American eel, which is the family Anguilla, Anguillidae, which is actually, uh, there's two species in the Atlantic Ocean, and I believe there's a total of 19 species. Two of them are in the Atlantic Ocean, and all of my research has really been focused on the American eel. And it is, when you think about it, it's an animal that's been ecologically successful every way you look at it. It's got a range that goes from South America up through Greenland and Iceland. It's found in every habitat you can think of, the ocean, estuaries, and every type of fresh water that has a connection direct or indirect to the ocean, you'll find the eels in them as well. So of any fish in the world, they have probably the widest distribution or habitat range that you see. They'll come in as a little larvae in the early spring and spend between, depending on the latitude, we'll have from a few years, two or three, to as many as 25 plus years in fresh water. Their sex is determined by the environment. So eventually the males or females is not determined the fertilization, but dependent upon the particular habitat that they find themselves in. Oh, what like the, uh, the temperature in which the eggs, I guess, so... Are they alive born? Are they born in eggs? Or Well, the spawning takes place in the Sargasso Sea. So we're thinking the, the Bermuda Triangle area is where the spawning takes place. And then you have a, a little leptocephalus larvae, is what it's called, is formed at, when the eggs hatch. And those will drift with the current, do a little bit of swimming, and come up to the East Coast. 
and finally make fresh water and come into freshwater rivers. The particular river that they enter, the characteristics of the river, we believe, may determine what sex they become. Females have yeah. a criteria and males have a, a different set of criteria. Yeah, I've heard some other creatures, depending on the temperature that the, uh, you know, the larvae are in or the eggs are in, that determines the sex, you know, yeah. temperature swings. What, what factors do you think contribute to it? Well, it seems that the females need to grow bigger, much larger. Females can, will mature at well over 40 centimeters where a male never reaches that size. 30 centimeters is about the average size of an adult male. So the females need to be larger to carry all those eggs. So they want to be in a habitat that allows them to grow larger, less competition, less predators, good growth environment. Things like ponds and lakes tend to be produce more females that we see. The St. Lawrence River produces almost all female eels. So we see certain habitats produce more females. And then coastal rivers that tend to be eels impacted in high densities will become male. Aquaculture, where they grow eels in very high captivity, always produces males. So we see a large environmental effect on the, the sex determination of what sex they become. Are there areas that are all female and all male, and then do they migrate to each other? Or well, what does the they, breeding look like in predominant male or predominant female areas? Well, so you'll have some rivers that are produced. I mean, they're never exactly 100% male or female, but you can have very high concentrations of males and a river that I spent a lot of time working on is a small coastal stream that's about 90 to 95% male. You have to remember now that eels are what we call a panmictic species, which means they all spawn in one area. So they all go to the Sargasso Sea to spawn. So an eel that comes into a river in Massachusetts, the mother may have been from Florida and the father could have been from Canada. They all go to the same area once a year at the end of their lifespan to actually spawn. So that's where the males and females mix. Okay. What do the eels eat? And I think you said they live up to what, 25 years? Or you can, the big females can grow up to that range. 20 years is probably a good number, but I've aged some that were over 30 years over the years. So they will eat basically anything that does not eat them first. They're very generalized feeders. The females that get larger will become piscivorous and eat other fish, usually around 40 centimeters in length, they become primarily piscivorous and start eating other fish. But up until that size, they'll eat insects, anything that they can consume. They can be predators. They can be scavengers. It's a wide variety of prey items. They're very good generalists. Are the American eels electric eels? Do they have that capability or is that? Oh, no, that, that's not. No electrical capacity. <laughs> These guys generate electrical electricity at all. That's a totally different The South Americans. That's a, a very different group of fish that actually, they're technically, they're not true eels. They don't have that leptocephalus larvae form. There's other characteristics they don't have. So we call them eels because they look like an eel. They have that eel body, but they're not true eels. Oh, huh, interesting. I mean, what is a fish that is closest to an eel? What are they most analogous to? Like snakes? They're a lower end of what we call the teleos, some of the more advanced fishes. So they're typically characters of a regular fish. They have characteristics, believe it or not, they share with tarpon and other fishes that we don't think of being eel-like because they share that unique larval form, that leptocephalus larvae. It's like a leaf-shaped larvae that forms. is also formed and shared by a few other groups of fishes. And the tarpon is one of them. And eel looks nothing like a tarpon, but yet we classify them phylogenetically as being somewhat similar. And how long, in the, I mean, eel has been found in the fossil record. Like how long do people think they've been around? 
Well, the Atlantic eels have been later. So, you know, we've, it's more of a, probably a Pacific origin to eels. And we have the two species in the Atlantic Ocean have probably migrated here. And because they're what we call their life history makes us think that they probably start out as a tropical species that catadromous, the fact that they spend their life in fresh water, but go out to the ocean to spawn, which is opposite what a salmon does. That life history strategy probably evolved as a southern phenomenon, more equatorial, because the rivers were not as productive as the ocean. We're more productive. So we could see there that it started as a southern latitude phenomenon. So these eels probably came from the Pacific, and now they've been expanding their range throughout the whole Atlantic. Yeah, how do they handle fresh water for so long and then go back into salt water? How do their bodies take that? How do they? They have the physiological capacity to, there's a lot of hormones involved and eels actually have some physiological mechanisms to produce things like cortisol very quickly, which is the hormone that they use for helping with that process. They have specialized kidneys for doing that. An eel can go back and forth with no trouble, kill some fish, they cannot physiologically handle it, but eels can go back and forth, you know, very quickly and do quite well. So they've been adapted for that. Salmon do that, dramatic change for them, but eels throughout their life can go back and forth. Are there some eels that will literally go back and forth within a day or within a, a yes. month? Yes. Well, some these American eels, if they're living in an estuary, they may have a feeding run that makes them put some walls of fresh water for a day or so or just hours, and they can easily go back and forth routine basis. So it's, it's quite common for them to be, to be able to do that. Now, how many do it routinely? I couldn't tell you that, but they have the capacity to do it. And you, you can picture well, areas where they could be right at the, front, the end of the saltwater in, interface and actually go back and forth quite readily. Have you physiologically, have you looked at, let's say, the epigenetic changes that happen when an eel goes into saltwater for fresh or vice versa? Or Maintaining your strength and a healthy heart as you age helps promote healthy living and hence quality of life for all people as they age. To help prevent the natural decline of muscle and heart function, it's important to make sure you are getting the nutrition your body needs. And not just any nutrition, but science-backed nutrition, like Life by the Amino Co. You can take Amino Life as part of your daily normal routine to help maintain muscle mass as you age, maintain good heart health, and increase longevity. A recent large clinical trial showed that Life was more effective than even exercise in maintaining strength and physical function in older patients. Further, life has been shown in clinical trials to clinically improve blood lipid profiles by reducing triglycerides, LDL, VLDL, and total cholesterol. Life is 100% science-backed and is designed for heart health and active aging, which are crucial for a total lifespan. Why AminoCo? Well, life works by triggering muscle protein synthesis which is the body's mechanism for repairing and building muscle. When tested against any other protein source, life is more than three times more effective on a gram-per-gram basis at stimulating muscle growth and repair. I know just how important it is for my quality of life and staying healthy as I age. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com genius. That's spelled A-M-I-N-O-C-O dot com slash genius. I've been on the lookout for something that could help me support healthy blood flow and help preserve heart strength and function, while also helping me maintain healthy triglyceride and LDL cholesterol levels. Further, something that tastes great and is easy to incorporate into my daily routine. So if you're looking for a nutritional advantage when it comes to maintaining muscle mass and cardiovascular health as you age, I recommend you give life a try. 
Don't forget, right now you can get 30% off with code GENIUS when you visit AminoCo.com slash genius. Plus, get a free gift with every new purchase. I have not looked at it, but it has been looked at. And we see things like the chloride cells in their gills, which actually the chloride cells will actually pump out chloride, pull in chloride when we switch habitat. So if you're in fresh water, you want to absorb those from the environment. And if you're in the seawater, you want to expel them. And they have chloride cells that change their numbers depending on which habitat they're in. So they can grow new cells and get rid of cells and turn them on and make them run a little faster, if you will, depending on which habitat they're in. That's a a very quick, major uh, change that they have. So what is your research about specifically? What are you trying to find out? Well, I have several areas. Currently, we're working on parasite that's invaded American eels. That's started as an Asian parasite, went through Europe, and now is affecting American eels here. We've been working on that, looking at its distribution and ways to identify if it's in an eel without having to kill the eel. Unfortunately, the parasite is a swim bladder parasite, which goes inside the buoyancy device of an eel. So picture eels have these little floaty devices inside them that fill with gas that allow them to uh, swim at a particular depth. This parasite is a worm that will actually fill the swim bladder and can cause problems. So we have trying to develop techniques for trying to find that. And we have an x-ray device, a handheld portable x-ray device that can be used to scan an eel and then know if it has the parasite or not without having to kill it, to dissect it, to find out the parasites there. What do the parasites do? Do they kill the eel or they just slow it down? Good question. It doesn't appear that they kill. Well, if they get too heavily infested, they can actually damage the swim bladder, but they live in the swim bladder and feed on the blood. The swim bladder is a highly vascularized structure. Again, it allows the animal to, to maintain a certain depth without using energy. But an eel for its whole early life, it's living in fresh water. We call that the yellow phase. During the yellow phase, they stay on the bottom most of the time, so they don't use that swim bladder. So if it's filled with parasites, they're feeding. We really don't see much of an impact. But then when the eel is going to make its migration to spawn, it's going to swim all the way to the Sargasso Sea. That's thousands of kilometers in some cases. You know, in the middle of the ocean where it needs that buoyancy control, it doesn't have that. probably where the worst impact of the parasite comes from. So that's does, uh, does the seawater enter into the swim bladder? When it goes into the no, it, it just it's a closed balloon. Literally, it's a balloon. It's a, a cavity. It's an air cavity inside where the eel, the parasite actually lives inside the swim bladder. So they're air within there, and they feed off the blood. So they'll latch on and feed off the blood that's coming into the swim bladder to the wall of the swim bladder. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over three thousand episodes, and as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers, because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going. And I love coffee. Thank you. Um, when an eel goes from fresh water to salt water, or vice versa, do the parasites 
Well, the person. I mean, I, I know they're 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 isolated from you know the the seawater, but still, like the the eels, blood chemistry would change. I mean, a lot would change about it epigenetically. So, is the parasite affected in any way? Does it change? Well, no, actually, the eel compensates. So, the eel's blood really doesn't change much. So, all the parasite sees that air sac and the blood supply, and the eel osmoregulates or controls its own blood supply by getting rid of extra salt. So the, the parasite probably doesn't even notice what environment it's in, it is in at that point. Oh, have you guys tested the parasites to see if they're different in salt water versus fresh conditions? Uh, no, because usually the, the eel doesn't, when they go out to sea, it's a very, they're on their way to spawn and die. So at that point in time, there has been a lot of work there. We've been looking at more things like temperature. Does the temperature affect the parasite inside there? Most of the impact is in freshwater. When the eels are entering freshwater, that's when they appear to be picking it up. And they'll, they'll have it for some points of their life. And then when they are leaving, it could be years later to do that. To my knowledge, we haven't examined the physiology at that point of changing the salt the seawater. There's been some studies okay. tracking eels with the parasite, but not looking at the, to my knowledge, looking at the parasite itself. Do, do uh, eels spawn multiple times in their life or just once? One and done. <laughs> so they will actually spend all that time. They may spend, like a female could spend 20 years getting to that size and she makes one migration to the Sargasso Sea. This is a major event in their lives. I mean, they go through a metamorphosis there. Eyes get larger. Some of their muscle type changes. They change coloration to be counter shading so they can't be seen in the water. Their fins change. Physiological changes. They lose their digestive system. Their digestive system actually is lost in the process because they're not feeding on this trip. So they have to swim thousands of kilometers without feeding, mature their eggs, and then they die at the end of that process. Oh. Shame. Now, again, I have to put a little caveat there. It's presumed that they die because no one has ever seen a, a eel in the Sargasso Sea. No one's been caught at this point in time. We know they get there by circumstantial evidence. That's where the smallest larvae have been found. But no one's actually seen eel spawning in the Sargasso Sea or actually even collected one in that area. How could, how could that be? There's so many of them. Do they, do they all tend to come like so every year? Do just different eels come down there or are there certain years like locusts where a lot more eels will come? Every year we have a spawning migration and probably every river on the U.S. will have their eels move out. They tend to leave. They sort of stagger their timing a little, it appears. So they arrive in the Sargasso Sea based upon when the most larvae are found. It appears that like February is probably the, the key time of the, the busiest time for spawning in that area. And this is where we know that's the time they're there. So they're all there spawning at, at that one time. Or well, that it's a, it could be over months, but the, the peak of it is in February. So are, are they not big enough for anyone to put a little tracker on them? The GPS tracker to follow them? There's been several tracking studies, but that is, that's a big problem there. Eels, you know, the big female eels can handle a tracking device, but even those slow the eel down. They're heavy. The technology is still not to the point where you can make small enough trackers or the energy supply for the tracker is actually the hard part. So there's been several studies who've tried it and they've got eels that were moving in the right direction, but they haven't got them all the way there yet. That's a, a future study. It'll probably be done, but I think the technology and the, the trackers have to be modified or improved so that we can actually track better. Is there a certain point that's the last the last point at which you could track the eels and then they they become lost? Like, has anyone well, tried to follow them as much as possible but loses their trail after a while? 
Well, again, then maybe Pingra tags is all along the coast, but these guys go off to sea. They're at 200 meters, 300 meters. Again, the only way to really tag them is use those pop-up tags, which they use on these large sharks and even marine mammals sometimes where they'll stay with the animal and, and plot its, its course. And then the animal at some point come up to the surface and broadcast all that tracking data. That means the best. So to my knowledge, I think 100 meters off the shore, they haven't caught an eel yet. They're difficult to catch. Well, what happens to the um, the freshwater, the rivers, the estuaries? It seems like, I guess they empty out eels or there's still plenty of eels left. Well, they, again, not every single eel leaves. It's when they reach a certain, their reproductive condition. Um, that's, again, another one of our research questions. We're trying to figure out what is the, the, the cues that make the, them want to leave. Is it size? Is it age? We think it might be how much energy they have because they have to store up so much energy that that may be the cue, especially for females. You know, they have to make some of them have to make a thousands of kilometer migration without feeding. So which we're thinking that may be the case. So that's something we're looking at to see if that's why they go through because not every eel is at that size. So it may take them, you know, males in the rivers I work on currently, it's about eight years or nine years for them to reach their particular size. And females, it could be 14 or 15 years old before they leave. And when they reach those sizes, that's when they leave. So not every eel is at that size. And every year, hopefully, we have thousands and thousands of little glass eels entering the river that are recruited from the year before's class. So the eels that are left behind will be smaller, but does it change their dynamic amongst one another? Well, it's, it's, it's just growing. So the, the bigger eels, you know, eels like the other eels as well. <laughs> they can be cannibalistic, but it tends to be the females take on a very different role in the, the habitat because they become predators. In some cases, they're the top predator in some rivers. You know, you can have a, a needle-long female eel that weighs, you know, two or three kilograms. She can be quite large, and she's going to eat a, a lot of a lot within that river where a male is much smaller and he has a different role in, in that habitat. He'll be mostly eating insects and smaller critters that he can collect. So they act differently within the river, but you're going to have all the different size classes available. And it's only the top tier that are going to mature and leave each year. Are eels okay with people, the American eels, or do they hurt them or they just stay away from people? They Well, they tend to be fairly nocturnal. So you don't realize if you've ever swam, probably at least in New England and maybe further south, the most common fish in that water body you were swimming in was an eel. You just don't see them because they tend to be nocturnal coming out at night. You might catch one on a hook and line for feeding during the day if a, you know you put some bait near one of them. But they tend to be pretty hard to find, so sort of cryptic in their behavior. But I've never been hurt by one, and I've handled them so many times that I would have noticed by now there was any harm to them, they, they're pretty easy to work with. Yeah, I remember when um, when my oldest daughter was very little, we went to get sushi and we got eel. Yes. And I said, do you want some eel? And she said, eel gross. Said, no, no, <laughs> eel. eel gro-. Yeah, she thought it was like eel, eel gross. Okay. I thought that was funny to play on words. But <laughs> anyway, so what, what else are you studying about them? Well, now I said we're looking at... Currently, we're trying to write up the data on that whole um, the parasite situation, trying to see if that we can detect it. And we looked at some temperature and trying to see, you know, for years now, they've moved up the East Coast. You know, they, South Carolina, they were first found in. And there was also a Texas location where they had shared eels. They were trying to get aquaculture. So there may have been some eels brought from overseas to be used there, the European eel. 
and it spread. And we've noticed it throughout all up to New England. We found it. And it hadn't been in the St. Lawrence River as in our previous surveys, but there were some reports of it being found. And we're curious because that's at a cold area of the range, and we're not sure if the parasite can really handle that same temperature. So we've been doing temperature experiments to see if the eel, if the St. Lawrence River's habitat would be too cold for the parasite to become prevalent. So we're, we're looking at that, and we're just analyzing that data right now. And we're also looking at the energy content. So we're trying to figure out how many, basically how many calories are in an eel when it, when it migrates. So we've been looking at males and females from different rivers in southeastern Massachusetts and looking at whether or not the females are the same, are they different, or what is the actual energy content of these animals? Is that what makes them want to migrate? Yeah. And how do they know where, I mean, do they, it's weird that no one knows where the spawning grounds are. Well, like how many eels do you think they would be in? How come no one can find them? Well, we know the Sargasso Sea is a circular water mass. So it's like a little island of water. And it's believed we have some hypotheses that when they eel swimming, they can smell the water. They can sense the water change, the currents. And that's their cue. That's when they know they've made it to the area. Because an eel, a female eel, when she, her eggs all are ready to be spawned, she swells up and she literally looks like a football with eyes. She becomes very unhydrodynamic. She's not going to swim very well. So she's going to wait until the last minute to get her eggs ready to go. So she's going to swim a couple of thousand kilometers and get to a location where she's ready. And then she swells up her body. The eggs hydrate with water and she could have five, six million eggs inside of one female. She'll release those eggs when she's ready to spawn that way. So we know they're going there. We find a lobby usually associated with the currents with the Sargasso Sea. And again, it's circumstantial evidence, but we can, we know that's when the smallest lobby have been found and they've only been a couple of days old. And the same thing has been done with the Japanese eel and their locations. They have actually found some female eels that have just spawned, but we haven't caught any American eels yet or European eels for that matter. Huh. Where do you think they sit in the water column? Like are they, are they using the swim bladders to go way down or, well, they, up or some of the tracking data that has been done is that they go up and down in the water column. And the idea is they may swim. It's about 200 to 300 meters is sort of depth. We think they spend most of their time at, and it could be because that's some colder water. And it, one hypothesis is that that colder water stops the, the gonads, the ovaries from developing. And the female, when she gets to the side, gets to see she can actually then let the, the gonads mature. And then once she matures those eggs, she cannot swim very well. So that has to be done at the last minute. And swimming at the depth may be what does that. They may come up for maybe some location mechanisms in play. But it's hard to say, but they do go up and down in the water column, from 200, 300 meters up to closer to the surface. Hmm, okay. Any other research projects you have about eels that discover interesting things about them? Well, we've done a lot over the years. We've done some artificial reproduction. We've actually got eels to spawn in a laboratory. We've produced leptocephalus larvae a few years back. One of the questions we had back then was uh, contamination issues. We No one's ever collected a female in a Sargasso Sea, so we don't know because there's been a decline in eels, and we didn't know if that decline could be in part related to pollution effects. You know, they're living in these some rivers that can be fairly polluted, different chemicals, whether they're organic compounds or just heavy metals, and we don't know what's happening in a Sargasso Sea. We can't collect a female there, so we would collect females, and we would analyze their chemical composition, and then we would get them to spawn in the laboratory and we could analyze the eggs and see if they were transmitting pollutants to the eggs and were these the larvae 
starting out life being contaminated already or having a, a bad start, so to speak. So that required us to actually go through the whole process of getting male and females and maturing them in the laboratory and then getting them to uh, spawn and actually fertilize the eggs. Hey, what are eels' roles in the various ecologies that you see? They just hang out and eat certain fish and keep them in uh, in check? Or I mean, what is their role? Well, they when they come in, you know, they come in excess. So these little leptocephalus larvae, you know, the numbers have been down, but they usually come in and more than a river can handle. So they are an in, a good source of nutrients coming into a river. So they're probably food items in, in a particular river for many years. But as they grow, they will start becoming more and more important predators in the system, limiting insects and other things. And then as they get to a larger size, the females get that 40 millimeter mark, uh, 40 centimeter mark, they become piscivorous and they can eat other fish and they can actually become primary predator in the, in the ecosystem, that particular location for many years. If a female's there for 20 years, she might spend her last six, seven or eight years as a top level predator coming out at night and everything she can. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So where can people go to find out more about your research? Oh, geez. Um, most of the work we've done yeah, has been published. So it would be there. I haven't all right, so people can look at what, uh, Google Scholar or ResearchGate? That would probably be the quickest, the easiest way to do that now, yes. Okay, I don't know if, you know, in your university had a specific website for your lab. I don't have one at this point. Oh, no worries, no worries. Well, very good. Well, well, Ken, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a really interesting call. Oh, well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Before you go, if you're looking for a nutritional advantage, be sure to check out AminoCo's 100% science-backed life formula. It was created by lead scientists, and co-founder, Dr. Wolf. As a competitive athlete, Dr. Wolf has completed 62 marathons in under 2 hours and 30 minutes, set national age group records, and he's still running and fueling his body with life at age 75. I recommend you give life a try. It's three times more effective on a gram-for-gram basis than any protein source. The Amino Co. is giving our listeners 30% off all Amino Co. products, including life. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com slash genius and use coupon code genius for a 30% discount at checkout. Remember, go to aminoco.com slash genius and use the code genius to get 30% off at checkout. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.